My name is John Sylvester. I'm Australia's longest serving crime reporter and write a weekly column for The Age. Many of my colleagues have wondered why I've never bothered to move to other areas of the paper. The reason's pretty simple. I've got the best job in journalism, playing cops and robbers and getting paid for it. Over more than 40 years I've covered some of Australia's biggest crimes and met fascinating characters on both sides of the law. In this series, you'll hear from them, the cops and the crooks, telling their stories. Welcome to my world. Welcome to Naked City. Long before barrister Nicola Gobbo became the lippy lawyer of Lonsdale Street, there was another who didn't just go off the rails, he derailed the whole train. In his 20s, the private school-educated barrister had the world at his feet, but in the space of about five years, it fell apart. Graham Alford was a smart, cunning, hard-working criminal lawyer with a loyal and regular client base, all connected to the fear Painters and Dockers Union. In the 70s, with shady members of the notorious Painters and Dockers Union as his clients, he became a part of the underworld. It was a licence to print money, and no doubt some of his clients would have tried that, because they were into every crime going around. For years, he was the private school, top-of-the-class type student who won a Commonwealth scholarship, excelled at Melbourne University, and breezed his way into a city law firm. He was also a heavy punter and a prodigious drinker, both vices that are not unknown in the legal fraternity, or journalism for that matter. I was drinking 30 to 40 beers a day. I was uh, consuming half a bottle of scotch if there was any sense left. I was smoking 50 to 60 cigarettes a day. As he would write much later in his book, Never Give Up, booze, gambling and the law, I was under the spell of all three and they would influence my life for years to come. It was when those worlds collided in a bar near Geelong that Alfred started a descent that took only a few years to destroy his marriage, career and reputation and decades to rebuild. Graeme, why the law? What was the attraction in the first place to uh, to go to university and study law? I, uh, I went to Trinity Grammar and uh, got a Commonwealth scholarship in year 12. That year, leaving Trinity, there were 15 guys going to Melbourne University and 12 were doing law. So uh, I thought I'll do law. And did you actually enjoy it? No, I didn't. But once I'd started it, I was determined to finish it. I didn't sort of really become infatuated with the law till I started doing my articles. We had a client, uh, I'll never forget his name, it was Alistair Charles Cameron Gardner, who was a backyard abortionist. And after two days of the committal, the money ran out. Uh, I said to him, look, I'll finish it. So I did the last three days of the committal and uh, I was hooked in. I really loved the courtroom work. In 1975, after a routine .05 case at Winchelsea, he stopped off for a beer on the way back to Melbourne and ended up chatting with a couple of blokes at the bar. I was coming back and I loved to drink in those days and I stopped at the Bowen Hotel and I was having a drink and I got talking to these two guys and one of them was the head of the Painters and Dockers. They were members of the Painters and Dockers, a union that provided a perfect front for organised crime. And when they discovered Alfred was a knockabout lawyer who thought the art of drink driving was not getting caught, they saw a kindred spirit and one asked for a business card. 
And he said, look, if any of my boys get into trouble, I'll give you a ring. And a couple of weeks later, the phone rang and it was Pat. And he said, one of the guys has been charged. Would you appear for him in Geelong? I said, sure. Uh, so I went down the case, won it, went back to the pub, had a drink, and uh, I was off and running, acting for the painters and doctors in the underworld. It turned out to be a pivotal, lucrative and ultimately disastrous move. He ended up with a group of habitual criminals on his books, the type that were likely to provide repeat business, with the union underwriting his fees so he always got paid. Well, that would have been a very lucrative stream because they were always in trouble. Yeah, look, and, and also I, I I was impatient. I, uh, I just decided that I wanted to get to the top a lot quicker, so I'd be bailing them out at four in the morning and uh, and all those sort of things and having a drink with them and, you know, one thing led to another and I got way too close to them. I broke every rule in the book. Just as Gobbo did, Alfred crossed the line and began socialising with his underworld clients. I was warned about socialising and drinking with my clients. In legal circles, an absolute no-no, but I thought, no, I'm cleverer. This is the way I'll build a practice. And practice didn't make perfect. Quickly, he was drinking with his clients. He was able to roll his two great pleasures, betting and drinking, into a networking opportunity. Every day, he would down 20 to 30 beers, sometimes topped off with half a bottle of scotch, Add some 60 cigarettes a day, fast food, crushing work hours, and a pathological desire to prowl Melbourne at night, and it was always going to end badly. At night he would drink in pubs, then head to the illegal two-up and baccarat games until around 2am, drive home drunk, and be back in the office at 7am. I was brought up in a drinking culture. Real men drink. If you didn't drink, there was something wrong with you. I mean, I was drinking probably 30 beers a day in those days, and I used to kid myself because I'd never drink before a case. I was gambling as well, so I was at the two up, you know, three or four nights a week, and then down the back around in Ackland Street, and, you know, my life was just spinning out of control. Quickly, Alfred stopped being a lawyer, acting for criminals, and became a criminal, acting as a lawyer. He laundered money at casinos for selected clients, organised bail at any time of the night, was available to crooks 24 hours a day and saw many of them as his closest friends. He washed money through the TAB and would buy winning tickets above their market rate. He knew, quote, a couple of TAB managers who would arrange for me to acquire winning tickets, unquote. He also had a kickback system with some police where if they recommended him to arrested suspects, he would sling 10% of the final fee back to the officer. Sometimes he'd bribe police to remove prior convictions from a client's file so that if they were convicted, they would receive a lighter sentence. Eventually facing huge gambling debts, he stole from his legal trust fund and was short 80000 uh, I owed one of the uh, guys in the underworld about $20,000 and it all came to an end in 1978. And I was charged over my trust account. Uh, I got uh, two years jail, five years with a two-year minimum for that. He was charged with multiple counts of fraud and was handcuffed in the Russell Street Police Station lift when one of his clients, who was also under arrest, stepped in. He looked his lawyer up and down and said, Well, Graham, there's not much point ringing you, is there? He was sentenced to five years with a two-year minimum. So I, I went to jail and lost a lot of weight and got myself fit, but it never occurred to me I had a drinking problem. Out in 16 months... 
Fit for the first time in years, but still in denial, he applied for a series of jobs requiring a legal background and failed each time. There's no great demand for a convicted crim who just happens to be a lawyer. And of course I got out and applied for jobs as if I was still a lawyer to get them. He drifted back to crime because, he says, the money's good and the hours are short. Uh, so I joined the underworld. The hours were short and the money was but it was never going to last. It was October 15, 1982, when a half-drunk Alfred donned a balaclava, grabbed his shotgun and with fellow armed robbers burst into the Chapel Street Paran branch of the National Bank. Subscriptions power our newsroom, making great journalism possible. Subscribe to The Age and Sydney Morning Herald using the link in the bio. While you're at it, you may as well give Naked City a yummy, scrummy review. It helps other people find us. Go on, don't be mean. An armed robbery was the bottom of a slide into crime that included money laundering, fraud and corruption, which had already cost him two stints behind bars. It was just after 2pm when two junior police in plain clothes patrolling Armidale in an unmarked Datsun 200B searching for burglars cruised down Chapel Street looking for a park to grab a late lunch. They were in a little Datsun 200B white car. Well, with a 200B you wouldn't want to have got into a car chase. <laughs> Well, I think it only had a two-litre engine, and, and it was manual too. I don't think there were many, <laughs> many uh, automatic cars in, and obviously no air conditioning in 1982. So uh, it was pretty, pretty sluggish, but couldn't really be recognised as a police car. We were patrolling um, just Paran and Turak and all that area, and we decided to stop for lunch in um, in Chapel Street at a coffee shop. Phil Bogle, 20, and Craig Guy, 23 may have been inexperienced, but they already knew cops can park wherever they like on duty, and so they mounted the curb and parked with two wheels on the footpath. Parked actually on the on the footpath because there's no spots around. We thought, well, seeing we're coppers and we're working, we may as well get away with it and park there illegally. Meanwhile, the manageress of an adjacent food bar saw the bandits park at the rear of the bank. She rang police, saying there was a robbery in progress, and used her own car to block the getaway vehicle. Bogle, who retired as a senior sergeant at Lake's Entrance, recalls, We parked illegally, of course, but we were there on Queen's business, buying our lunch. A radio call came in. There was a hold-up at the NAB in Chapel Street. I said to Craig, I think that's here. In plain clothes, we wandered in and there was a full-on stick-up in progress. There were three blokes disguised in marks. They'd sprayed over the cameras and were emptying the tills. All were armed with sawn-off shotguns. One of us yelled police and we pulled out our undercover five-shot Smith & Wesson revolvers. P-shooters, really. It looked like quite a professional job that they were doing. They'd spray-painted the cameras and all that type of thing and uh, people were lying on the floor and all that. And It was either me or Craig, I can't remember, we both might have yelled, stop, we're the police, you know, and, and everyone sort of scattered. Like I think there were three or four gunmen and they were all armed with uh, sawn-off shotguns and they all sort of scampered when they saw us. I don't know why they would have scampered seeing um, two 20, early 20-year-old 20 blokes in, in playing clothes. But we did have our guns out by that stage and, and everyone went for a run. One of them ran off down a lane. He was carrying a shotty 
and a bag of money. Money was flying everywhere and people were taking cover. He turned around, raised the barrel and pulled the trigger. The gunman that Craig and I chased, um, he ran out the front door of the bank onto Chapel Street and he was carrying a bag of money, a bag of money in one hand and a sawn-off shotgun in the other. And, and Craig and I took off after him Friday afternoon in Chapel Street. You can imagine there was people everywhere. People were scattering, seeing this bloke with a shotgun. Money was flying everywhere out of the bag. And Craig and I got our guns out yelling, stop police, stop police. People must have thought, well, there was a movie being made. But um, And we just chased him and he turned left into a, into a side street there. Alford remembers it too. There were a couple of uh, younger policemen came out of the bank with two others and when we came out of the bank, the driver had already been apprehended. So I ran up Chapel Street and then down a side street. We caught up with him and when we come round the corner, he actually had the sawn-off shotgun facing us. You know, it was basically it looked like, you know, he was going to shoot us. I believe he did actually pull the trigger and it misfired, but we just said, stop, drop the weapon, and he did. We were too scared to shoot him, so we yelled, police, don't move, drop it or we'll shoot, and he dropped it. The bandit was Graham Alford. How lucky was I? They were young coppers who still believed in stop or we'll shoot. Thank God it wasn't the armed robbery squad. Graham suggested if it was the robbers, it would have been stop, bang, sorry. When the two young coppers yelled, stop or we'll shoot, he thought, you know what? I think I'll stop. Uh, so I stopped, thank goodness. And uh, I was arrested and that was uh, literally a turning point in my life. And we arrested him and took him back to a, a divvy van that was parked in Chapel Street. You know, I, I think as a 20-year-old, I, I didn't want to shoot him and I don't Craig wanted to either, you know. like I, I think these days, I think in... The current climate now, I probably would have shot him. There's no no two ways about that. It's, it's uh, Graham Alford, and he said, thank God I got a couple of young blokes out of the academy because it had been the armed robbery squad. The result would have been profoundly different. Oh, oh look, look, definitely. And as I said, if as I got older and wiser in the police force, I, I, I definitely would have shot him because I thought, well, it's either my life or his. And uh, young and innocent, we didn't. And luckily, we didn't because you don't want to have that on your conscience for the rest of your life. Yeah, so I'm, I'm pleased we didn't. Yeah, well, Graham sent his regards over there. Two sergeants from Paran, Peter Steele and Ray Dingo and McLeod Dryden, were nearby on an important mission, heading to the station hotel for a long afternoon on the beers when they saw the divvy van scream by. It's amazing what happens when you've got your mind set on a big steak from Albert's uh, station hotel and... Uh, all of a sudden, the divvy van, the Fran van, uh, came screaming uh, across the front of us, uh, lights going and um, heading down in the direction of the, the National Bank, which was uh, just opposite the Fran Town Hall. We were sort of in the back street here. We said, what on earth's going on here? So we uh, just followed the van straight down to uh, the back of the bank and uh, there we could see some, it looked like there was a, a police and an offender uh, being rustled up at the back of the bank. Um, yeah, so it looked as though there was uh, clearly some sort of hold up there um, at, the, at, at the bank. Unarmed and in civilian clothes, they saw bandits scarpering from the bank and Dingo track one, Lawrence William Chocker Rowley, as he tried to disappear through a car park. So you're unarmed and Peter's unarmed? Yep, 
Yep, yep, we're, we're, we're in our cities, uh, not prepared for anything like this, uh, so we, we jumped out. I cast my eye up towards Chapel Street. One chap go, turned to the right up in Chapel Street, and I think another one went to the left. Now, there was police running everywhere at that stage. Now, this is Friday afternoon on Chapel Street, so pretty busy, a lot of cars everywhere. I turned right, and in the car park at the back of the hotel, I saw this, uh, didn't look a big bloke, but was sort of walking very quickly across the car park and uh, two and two together. I thought, this is the, this is the one I'm after. Looked as though he was from the, um, the hold-up. So without trying to make too much of a, a big deal about it, I'm, I'm trying to uh, you know just quickly get up behind him. And uh, so he turns around and spots me. And um, within two seconds, he's got the uh, a big shooter and he uh, uh, looked like a revolver and he's turned around and pointed straight at me. And that's uh, when I've sort of thought, hey, this isn't good. <laughs> now that's Lawrence William Chocker Rowley, yeah? Yeah, Lawrence William Rowley, uh, Chocker Rowley. For those in New Chocker, you, you don't forget his face. He's uh, only a little black, but uh, very distinguished features. He's, um, yeah, so as soon as I saw his face, I recognised him. But my concern at that stage was this gun started to sort of back off reasonably quickly. He had to put the gun away in the front of his, uh, well, he had a tracksuit on, so he put the uh, shooter away and then started to walk across the car park and he started heading back towards Chapel Street. Now, I was a bit concerned about uh, the following caper if they were doing anything too close to him at that stage, uh, so I, I watched him t- hightail it into, uh, he wasn't running, just moving quickly into to this road that goes up towards Chapel Street until he was out of sight and then I came running around and into the street and to my shock and horror he's standing there with the gun uh, out again pointed at me because he must have thought that I'd be you know following him uh, so I backed off again got around totally out of sight unfortunately there was no shots I was, I was relieved with that he put the gun away again headed down towards back into Chapel Street he took the shooter out again he was trying to open the doors of cars, so I sort of stopped in Chapel Street, trying to hop, yeah, obviously, commandeer a car. He produced this big shooter from his tracksuit, and I thought, Jesus, what's going on here? Dingo backed off for a moment as Rowley walked away, but cut back to Chapel Street, where the gunman again took aim at his pursuer. He watched as Rowley walked down the middle of the busy road, trying to carjack a motorist. I thought, I can't have this, so I ran up and grabbed him around the guts. Uh, he thought he's my chance. So, you know, where from where I was, I had to sort of run around the back of the car. I, I felt both my hands on his um, on his tracksuit around the, the stomach area. I thought I've got him. Uh, there's that's the end of it here. He's uh, he didn't have the shooter out, so I thought this is uh, this is it. But I had new shiny boots on, and I slipped to the ground. He pointed the gun at me again, and I thought it could be third time unlucky. All of a sudden, the uh, these bloody boots that I had on uh, just slipped right underneath me because uh, I'd sort of moved around the back of the car pretty quickly. There was no traction and I've gone, I've ended right in the back on the ground. Chocker's, uh, <laughs> Chocker, he stepped, stepped, stood back and uh, taken the gun out again and, uh, uh, the, well, yeah, three times. This is, uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, Dingo crawled under a car and Rowley jumped into another vehicle, put his gun to the female driver's head and ordered her 
to drive to Canterbury Road, Middle Park. I crawled underneath a car, I think. Um, it was parked in Chapel Street. And luckily enough for me, he didn't shoot, so he's walked in the middle of the roadway with the gun out, uh, just uh, holding it by his side. He's turned left at the Coles supermarket to go down the back of the car park area. I couldn't believe I'm still there. Still, still with everyone. So I've actually uh, got up, got to my feet, run up there and uh, just didn't go anywhere, obviously anywhere near him, but I saw him put the gun to uh, a driver of a car. I think it was a female and then he shot in and off he's gone. He must have thought, Dingo, you're a pretty slow learner. I mean, three times before before you finally, you finally bug it off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, look, I, it's, it's amazing what thoughts go through your head. I, I, um, I thought it was pretty foolish of me having a go the third time. Chucker Rowley was arrested months later. Instead of receiving first aid or counselling, Ray McLeod Dryden continued to the station hotel. I think I had 20 pots. When things as things are sort of starting to settle down, uh, the first thing uh, I had to go down the station hotel and uh, and just tell some people there that while I was late, I thought it was probably not a bad idea just to just to have a couple of frothies just to um, just to calm the nerves. I think uh, that stage. Did you get your steak or not? <laughs> no, no, never, never actually got the steak. That was one uh, Albert owed me, but. Uh, I, I enjoyed a few, obviously, um, in the days to come. <laughs> well, but, uh, you, you wanted but, uh, a you wanted to wrestle a porterhouse, not a freaking uh, arm robber. <laughs> yeah, so it, 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 it was. It was a. It was a. It was an interesting day. Um, it's something that uh, always live, lives with me. I think in terms of the fact that I never caught him. Meanwhile, Alfred was in jail with broken ribs care of a rather robust police interview and finally went to an AA meeting. He hasn't had a drink since. And it was here at Pentridge that he finally decided he'd fallen far enough. He was sentenced to five years jail and was released in 1986 after serving just over three years, determined to rebuild his life. He gave up cigarettes and the booze, dropped weight, ran marathons and set himself mental challenges to improve his alcohol damaged memory. And I kept saying to myself, how did it finish like this? This isn't a normal career path for a lawyer. And uh, the next day they called an AA meeting. And I didn't an alcoholic, but I thought I needed a defence. I was pretty confident the jury wasn't going to accept it. I was just window shopping in Chapel Street, Paran, with overalls and gloves and a balaclava. And a gun. And a gun, yes, yeah, and a shotgun. So I, um, I went to the meeting and uh, get my head around the fact that I was an alcoholic and uh, that alcohol had uh, taken me on this journey and I accept full responsibility for everything I did, but I also know now why it happened. Uh, that was it, you know, it was, uh, my life just changed. So, in fact, the, the jail was the best thing that could have happened to me. It sounds a cliche, but it sounds like you actually did need to hit rock bottom. Yeah, well, something had to happen for me to change my thinking. And uh, as it turned out, it was the jail sentence. Through a program of mental toughness, he won back his freedom, remarried, and built up a million-dollar business in customer service training. Because of my prior convictions, uh, I made a commitment to myself that I'd never get back into the uh, business world as an employee uh, because I knew my convictions would come back to haunt me. I started putting on the uh, the events, the business events, and bringing speakers out from overseas. 
And uh, who were some of the speakers that you brought out? Well, the first big one we brought out was Tom Peters. He wrote a book called In Search of Excellence. And then I brought out uh, Storm and Norman, General Schwarzkopf, uh, Lee Iacocca, the former president of Ford and Chrysler, uh, Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Then I brought out Mikhail Gorbachev, the former president of Russia in 1999. And in 2000, Nelson Mandela and Reuben Hurricane Carter. Well, you had something in common with them. You'd all been in a cell. Well, it was interesting. I can remember standing next to uh, Reuben and uh, Nelson Mandela, thinking to myself, uh, I'm only a junior here. One of these guys has done 28 years and the other's done 20. <laughs> <laughs> How would you describe your life now? Oh, fabulous. I, I wouldn't change for anything. I enjoy life. Uh, I'm doing things that uh, I never even dreamed I'd be doing. He lectures and works tirelessly for charity in an attempt to repay society. I had real feelings of remorse and guilt and I, it took me a, a fair while to come to grips with how I was going to handle that because a lot of people got hurt uh, for one reason or another. And I knew that if I can't change the past and I can't live with his guilt, all I can do is concentrate on the future and, and try and put back and do some things which are positive and that's the only way I could ever make amends. You only get one crack at it. It's not a practice round. I mean, no one's shown me a video of the next life. This is it, and you've got to enjoy it. The turnabout has been nothing short of remarkable. He's written three best-selling books, set up several successful businesses, is a sought-after motivational speaker, and now works in drug rehabilitation. On Gobbo, who ended up acting as a not-so-secret police informer, Alfred says... I'm amazed on two counts. On any level, how did they think this would finish? And why would she do it? It makes no sense. No one in their right mind would do it. The big question is, did any of the prosecutors or judges know? Alfred says drugs has changed the underworld. Drugs have changed everything. Once it was all about tough, hard people like Les Kane, Brian Kane and Ray Chuck. Now with drugs, it's all about how much money you have. People like Carl Williams would have been chopped up back then. Well, in the end he was, wasn't he? Because he was bashed to death inside prison in 2010. Sometimes, you know, crime just doesn't pay. This episode of Naked City was produced and edited by Margaret Gordon. Archival audio from Nine, Tom McKendrick is head of audio.